uh, there's the opportunity to ask questions after the sermon, so feel free to use that and to text the questions in. Let me pray for us before I begin. Oh Lord God, would you speak to me? Would you speak to us? And with the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth, Lord, would they all bring glory to you? We pray this your son's name. Amen. Trying again, let's say. <laughs> Testing. Okay, not going, let's see. Ah, there we go. Uh, we all hate rejection. Rejection of one kind or other, whether it's rejection for college application, rejection for a job application, or rejection when it comes to dating. I mean, I had my own share of rejection. I remember that when I first applied for college, I applied to six different colleges, and I got rejected by all of them. But, you know, I, I applied as a transfer and I got in somewhere. But then, when it came to applying for graduate college in engineering, I applied to six, I got rejected by all of them, you know. You thought that I would have learned my lesson in terms of how to, how to apply for colleges, but I guess I didn't. So all of us, uh, we don't handle rejection well. But here's a letter that a Harvard student wrote to a potential employer after receiving his rejection letter. And let me read it to you because I don't think you can read it on the screen. It reads, Dear Mr. Wilson, I was naturally somewhat disappointed to receive your rejection letter yesterday. Of course, it was not unexpected in the view of the great number of people who interviewed with you. Imagine my surprise, though, when I opened my mail today and found yet a second letter of rejection over your signature. What was I to make of it? Was this merely the second step of a no, no, a thousand times no sort of response? While undeniably elegant, I have to suspect that the need to economize in these troubled times would preclude such inefficiency. At the most, you would have put all the letters into a single envelope. Might your reaction have been so strong that a single letter was not enough to enable you to get it out of your system? If that is the case, I might recommend a single good, nasty, insulting letter. It would no doubt be more satisfying than even a dozen we-appreciate-your-interest letters. Or perhaps this is an effort, however enigmatic, to establish an ongoing correspondence. You know, one-sided though it may be, it does keep the channels of communication intact. It seems a little like establishing a relationship with the weather service recording. But who am I to criticize? Allow me to recommend some alternatives. You might include a returnable postcard with boxes to check marked, yes, I am now thoroughly convinced that you have rejected me, and no, I am not yet persuaded, better try again, but be sure to include one of those skinny little pencils if you choose to adopt this idea. Another possibility you should consider is to establish connections with a local firm which could, 
economically, call me up each morning and reassure me that I am still rejected. You could have your LA office, with which I did not interview, send me a rejection letter. Why? Come to think of it, you might even open up some foreign offices so you could send me rejection letters in a variety of languages. But enough of my ideas, best wishes, whatever you decide. Yours rejectedly, but in good humor. Now, I don't think that many of us would ever respond like that, and most of us are actually quite bad in terms of handling rejection. And the same is true when it comes to sharing with others the unbelievably good news about Jesus. It is the one of the major reasons why we don't or why we stop sharing the good news with others. And this morning, I want to tell you the story of Paul's response as he faced the final rejection of the gospel from the Jewish leaders in the book of Acts. So the way I'm going to go about today's sermon is that I'm going to tell you the story, I'm going to draw out the big idea, and then end with a couple of applications. All right, so that's how I'm going to go. Now, coming to the story here, you know, after leaving Malta, Paul then finally arrives in Rome. And when he's in Rome, he's allowed to stay by himself. That doesn't mean that he's in solitary confinement, but that, you know, he can rent a kind of a little place, and then he would only have a soldier to guard him. And it's only a soldier, not even a centurion, not even a lot of soldiers. And so he's very lightly guarded. And the reason why he's lightly guarded is not because he's a Roman citizen, but because the legal case against him is very weak. So he's allowed to stay by himself with just only a guard here. But after three days, Paul decides to call the Jewish leaders, and he wants to talk to them. Now, why does he want to talk to them? Ultimately, he wants to explain why he is in custody and why there's a legal case between him and the Jewish authorities. But at the same time, Paul also wants to speak with them because he wants to share the gospel with them. It has always been part of Paul's strategy that salvation is first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So Paul always preaches first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So in Rome itself, he can't go to the Jewish synagogue because he's under house arrest. So therefore, he invites the Jewish leaders to come to him, and he begins to explain to them the gospel. But what did Paul and the Jewish leaders talk about? There's only one verse in Acts here, in verse 23, where Paul talks about his defense, namely that he witnessed to them, he explains to them about the kingdom of God, and he tries to persuade them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And a couple of verses earlier, in verse 20, Paul says that he is in chains because of the hope of Israel. So there are three things that Paul talks to them about, the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God, Jesus, and they are all interconnected. So I'm going to go ahead and just start and begin with the hope of Israel and see how all of them are connected. All right, so beginning with the hope of Israel. Hope of Israel coming, and it's coming, and it's still, there we go. The hope of Israel, the content of this hope, what is this hope that Paul is staking his entire life on is really the resurrection of the dead. 
So in the book of Acts, we see very several places where the hope is explained to be the resurrection from the dead. So in chapter 23, verse 6, he says that he is on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. In chapter 24, verse 15, he says that there will, I am, have the same hope, and that hope encompasses the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And then in chapter 26, when he's before King Agrippa, he again says that the hope is regarding that God raises the dead. So ultimately, the, the content of this hope, what this hope is about, is ultimately about resurrection of the dead. But how is the resurrection of the dead understood? It is fundamentally understood two ways in the time of the first century. And that ultimately, there are two meanings, a literal meaning and a metaphorical meaning. The literal meaning is the meaning that we are most familiar with. It's where the body comes back to life. It is a re-embodiment. It is not just coming back to life again, but coming back to life with a new body. This is a meaning of resurrection that we are most familiar with. But the second meaning of resurrection during the first century is ultimately metaphorical in that it is a return from exile. It is a restoration of Israel, return from exile, and the formation of the king of, kingdom of God. It is ultimately based on the covenantal promises that God made of Israel. Now, what, in the Old Testament, what is the most famous passage about resurrection? that you can think of? The what? Ezekiel 37, them bones, right? The valley of them bones here. But even Ezekiel 37 itself, notice how it is framed here. I'm going to raise you up from your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. So even in the most famous passage of resurrection in the Old Testament itself, Resurrection was connected with a return from exile. So there's both a literal meaning and a metaphorical meaning. But when and how will this resurrection happen? When and how will this resurrection happen? Ultimately, it's going to happen at the end of the age, and how it's going to happen is that everybody is going to be resurrected together at the same time. Everybody together at the same time. Nobody ever, ever thought possible that an individual would have been raised or would be raised before the end of the ages. So can you imagine when the apostles and Paul proclaim that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead and has indeed been resurrected, they were making an astounding claim. And as the first person to be resurrected, they were saying that ultimately Jesus is going to be the head of a new group of resurrected people, just as Adam was the head of a new people. And that Jesus, as the first person to be resurrected, was going to be the second Adam, the head of a new group of humanity that will be resurrected. And so that ultimately they were saying that Jesus here is the hope of Israel. That ultimately in the presentation, Paul argues that the kingdom of God and the hope of Israel to which all the prophets and the laws and Moses, all of them pointed towards Jesus. All of them find their fulfillment in Jesus and that Jesus is the hope of Israel. 
But in the story, we read that the Jewish leaders, some believed, some didn't believe. And then ultimately, they left when Paul begins to say that this was all a fulfillment of Isaiah 6. He then declares that the hope of Israel is also the hope of the world, and that God's salvation has also been sent to the Gentiles who believe, so that ultimately Jesus is not just, Jesus is not just the hope of Israel itself, but that Jesus is the hope of the world. But as a result of the Jewish rejection here, Paul then begins to quote a passage from Isaiah 6. Paul quotes a passage from Isaiah 6, and I'm going to put it up on the screen here. And that, let's see here. It says the Holy Spirit, as they were leaving, as the Jewish leaders were leaving, he says that the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear with their ears, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Now, Isaiah 6 is a very important passage. And I'm going to show the significance of Isaiah 6 in three different contexts. I'm going to show the significance of Isaiah 6 in the context of Paul's ministry, in the context of the book of Isaiah, and then in the context of the book of Luke Acts together. It's going to be a little bit uh, intricate, so you have to put on your thinking hats and follow along a little bit closely. All right? So first, let's take a look at the quotation, the citation of Isaiah 6 in the context of Paul's entire ministry. And we have to remember that in Acts 28 here, this is Paul's last sermon. And it would be good to compare that to Paul's first sermon. Paul's first sermon is in Acts 13 in the synagogue at Antioch Pisidia. And this is Paul's last sermon in Acts 28. So we're going to compare Acts 13 and Acts 28. So in Acts 13, you get Paul's first sermon to the Jews. Acts 28, you get Paul's last sermon to the Jews. In all of them, you get an unfavorable response from the Jews. You get a turning to the Gentiles, and you also get a quotation from Isaiah. In Acts 13, Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6. In Acts 28, Paul quotes Isaiah 6.9. So there are a lot of similarities between Acts 13 and Acts 28, but there are also differences. And that the differences in Acts 28 is that when Paul quotes Isaiah 6 here, he mentions the Holy Spirit, he mentions the prophet Isaiah, and moreover, he makes this prediction that they will never understand. And that ultimately, all of these differences tell me then that in Acts 28 here, this is a summary, and this is also the climax here of Paul's experience regarding the response of the Jewish people to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a summary and climax of the Jewish rejection of the gospel by the Jewish leaders in response to Paul's proclamation of the gospel. So that is the significance of Isaiah 6 in the context of Paul's ministry. 
Now, when we take a look at Isaiah 6, it's, it's kind of pretty harsh. You know that? It's kind of pretty harsh. How do we understand it? How should we understand it? And I think that we need to understand it first within the context of Isaiah. And that the context of Isaiah 6 is that Isaiah is in the temple. He receives the prophetic commission to be God's spokesperson. In response to the rebellion of the people, the rebellion which is outlined in chapter 1 to 5, God commissions Isaiah to pronounce judgment on the people. He is basically to tell the people that they will never understand his message and that his preaching will bring about the hardening of their hearts. It's a difficult passage because it sounds as if God's desire is to harden their hearts lest they be healed. But it must be remembered that God's judgment in Isaiah 6 is nothing more than the ratification or the confirmation of Israel's choice of rebellion. Israel hardens her heart against God in chapters 1 to 5, rejecting God's instruction. God then ratifies, God confirms their decision, and therefore hardens their hearts. But within the entire book of Isaiah itself, the message of judgment is not the final word. Because the message of judgment in Isaiah 6 is followed on later in the sequence of the entire book of Isaiah by Isaiah 40 with the message of salvation. Do you remember the passage from Isaiah 40? A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. All right? So here the significance of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40 is that ultimately judgment It's not the last word. There is salvation to be found, and that salvation is to be found in the coming Messiah. All right? So this is the significance of Isaiah 6 in the context of the entire book of Isaiah. Now, one more final trick, all right? Which is the significance of Isaiah 6 in the context of the entire book of Luke-Acts. Now, we all know that here, that Luke-Acts is one unified book. It's one unified book. They are written by the same person, and it's meant to be read together. But in the book of Luke-Acts, the sequence of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40, they are flipped. There is a switcheroo. So that Isaiah 40, the message of salvation, happens at the beginning of Luke-Acts, at the birth of Jesus, at the coming of John the Baptist, a voice calling in the wilderness, where because John the Baptist is announcing the coming of the Messiah, so that's why Luke puts Isaiah 40 in the beginning. But that Isaiah 6 happens right at the end of the book of Acts itself. So taking a look then, you know, at the sequence in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Luke-Acts, so in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, have the message of judgment, followed by the message of salvation. But in the book of Luke-Acts, you have the message of salvation followed by the message of judgment. In the book of Isaiah, judgment is not the final word because salvation is to be found in the coming Messiah. But in the book of Luke-Acts, salvation has already come, has already come in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. 
If you reject this salvation, there is no other salvation and that there is judgment. So the book of Acts, Luke Acts, is telling us that salvation has already come in the person of Jesus and that if you reject it, ultimately there is only going to be condemnation here. And it's telling us that Jesus is the only hope for Israel. There is to be salvation in no one else and that Jesus is the only hope of Israel, and that Jesus is the only hope of the world. But because Jesus is the only hope of the world, there will definitely be people who reject him, as prophesied in Isaiah 6. And so here, the significance of Isaiah 6 is also telling us that rejection of the good news will surely come. Rejection of the good news will surely come. So after Paul tells about this Isaiah 6 then, we are then left with a couple of verses which kind of wraps up the entire book of Acts here. And within this entire book, the last couple of verses gives an account of the next two years of Paul's life in Rome. Paul stays in prison from AD 60 to 62. He proclaims the good news freely to all who come. And at the end of the two years, he's probably released has some more ministry probably in Spain, probably in Macedonia, and then he is probably uh, in prison again and then martyred in probably about AD 64. But here, why does Acts end here? Why does Acts end at this part here and not tell us what has happened to Paul? All right? There's no mention of the outcome here of the appeal, no mention about Paul's fate here. And the focus on Luke Acts here, I think, is not so much on Paul, but it is really about the advance of the gospel through Paul to Rome. And that Paul, the book of Luke Acts ends here in Rome here because it is the fulfillment of the, what Jesus had said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, we know that the ends of the earth, it's not geographical. It's not the most remote parts of the world. But it is still logical in that the ends of the earth refer to the Gentiles. So that ultimately here, it is the proclamation of the gospel in Rome, at the heart of the Roman Empire then, is the fulfillment of the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But at the same time, you know, Luke also ends here to remind us that the gospel is not so much about us. The gospel is not so much about us, but rather about the plan of God. I mean, we are all interested in human interest stories, but Luke's focus is not biographical, but theological. And Acts reminds us that as of first importance, the gospel is not so much about us as it is about God, not so much about our individual lives as it is about God's redemption of humanity, not so much about our individual weaknesses as it is about God's mercy and strength, not so much about how God fits into our plan, but how we fit into God's plan of salvation. And so the gospel then demonstrates the faithfulness of God to provide hope for the world.
Now, in this part here, in this story, we see the Jews rejecting Paul's preaching of the gospel. But despite the rejection that Paul faces, he nonetheless continues to proclaim the good news. And this brings us to the big idea of the passage here, in that despite rejection here, let us proclaim that Jesus is the hope of the world. Despite the rejection that we will face, let us witness to the good news that Jesus is the hope of the world. And the text also gives us three reasons why we should continue to witness to the, to the good news. Ultimately here, that Jesus is the only hope of the world. First reason here, Jesus is not only the hope of Israel, but Jesus is the hope of the world. Second reason, rejection will surely come. As we proclaim the good news that Jesus is the only hope of this world, this passage also tells us that we will face rejection. But it reminds us that it's ultimately not about us. Acts ends without telling us what happens to Paul as a reminder that the gospel work is not really about us, but about what God is doing in the world. Ultimately, the pa passage here tells us that let us continue to proclaim the good news despite the rejection that we will face. Let me end with uh, just two applications here. First one here, ultimately, of most importance, Jesus is the only hope of the world. Now we come to the end of our story in Acts. And the story of Acts is ultimately a story of how the early followers of Jesus went everywhere proclaiming the unbelievably good news that Jesus is the hope of the world. For those of you who do not know Jesus, know that Jesus is your hope. For he offers you freedom from exile and he offers you new life. Because of our rebellion against God, because we have dishonored God who created us, because we have not given him the honor that he deserves, because we have done what is right in our own eyes, all of us are in spiritual exile. We are all away from a true home. We are all prodigals. But Jesus came to lead us home, to bring us home back to where we truly belong. And at the same time, because of our sin of rebellion against God, we are all spiritually dead. And that Jesus has come to bring us life, both in the present and also in the future. So Jesus is not just the hope of the world. He is the only hope of the world. Just as in our story today, the Jewish leaders who rejected the message of salvation in Isaiah 40 will face the message of judgment in Isaiah 6, so also will we that if we reject the good news that Jesus is the Savior, we will face the bad news that he is going to be our judge on the day that he comes to judge both the living and the dead here. Ultimately, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So I implore you that if you have questions about Jesus, speak to me, speak to one of the pastors, speak to the friends who brought you, and ultimately come to a conclusion about who you think this person Jesus is. It is not a question to be trifled with. All right? So ultimately remember that Jesus is the only hope of the world. But let me come to my second application. For those of you 
who have already placed your hope in Jesus, who consider Jesus to be your hope. Ultimately, how can you proclaim the good news that Jesus is the hope of the world despite rejection? There's this talk here on a TED talk by this person, by Jia Jiang, and he talks about what I learned from 100 days of rejection. He had a humiliating experience in front of the entire classroom when he was six that really haunted him throughout his adult life. So he went on a bold experiment to overcome his fear of rejection by going on a 100-day journey, purposely placing himself in a position to be rejected so as to get over his fear of rejection. All right, it's, <laughs> it's radical. So on the first day, he went up to a total stranger, asked, asked whether he could borrow 100 bucks. And of course, the person says no. But he was so scared when the person said no, he just ran away. All right? And he thought, I have to do a little bit better. I have to ask why. All right? So the next day, he decided to go to a fast food restaurant. He ordered a hamburger, ate a hamburger. And then he, after finishing the hamburger, he went back up to the counter and asked, can I have a hamburger refill? And the person asked, what's a hamburger refill? It's like a soda refill, you know that? But instead of getting another soda, you get another hamburger, you know that? <laughs> but anyway, he did this and continually did this for about 100 days, all right? Now, I'm not saying that you all should deliberately place yourself in a position to be rejected for 100 days, but if you do so, let me know how it turns out, all right? But that's something that can be learned from this experience. He found out that our fear of rejection comes when we make faulty assumptions that it is all about us. According to him, you know, the best way to confront rejection is to ask why. And the answer may surprise us and that when we engage with the person rather than just running away totally out of fear, we can turn that rejection into a gift so that ultimately we do not let our rejection define us, but we let our response to that rejection define us. And I think that there are some things that we can learn and apply to our evangelism. Firstly, remember again, it is not about us. It is not about us. When people reject the gospel, they are not rejecting me, but they are rejecting the message. When we share the gospel faithfully with truth and love, Rejection has very little to do with us and everything to do with the gospel. We take rejection personally. I mean, it's natural to do so. But we should not be discouraged when people reject the gospel. They are not rejecting me. They are rejecting the message. They are rejecting God and the offer of salvation. Ultimately, does not Jesus himself say that whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me, ultimately rejecting God. I mean, we all think that evangelism is dependent on our abilities. But that is the Holy Spirit, the one who ultimately convicts people of their sin, and that salvation is ultimately the work of God, not really of the messenger. So don't run, but rather engage and ask why. I think that the next thing that we can learn ultimately is, that, is to remind ourselves that God is still at work. God is still at work in the life of the individual even after I have disappeared. If we have 
faithfully shared the gospel, even if that person rejects the message, they must have heard the gospel message. And as I walk away, I can walk away believing that the Spirit will continue to work in that person. That Spirit will continue to use what has been shared in the life of that person. Yesterday, I had dinner with a friend of ours who is a missionary in Japan. And that missions it's in Japan is difficult work. So that even after decades of mission work in Japan, less than 1% of the population are Christians. Less than 1%. So I asked him and his wife, you know, what really enabled you all to continue ministering despite the seemingly lack of fruit? And he says that he has to remind himself that he is just planting seeds. Just planting seeds. And sometimes the seed may take a long time, may even take generations to germinate. So we remind ourselves that God is still at work in the world. And he will accomplish his plan of salvation in his own time, not ours. And that he only calls us to be faithful in proclaiming the good news. Now here we come to the end of Acts And we've seen how the word of God spread from Jerusalem to Rome. And it continues to spread. And it will continue to spread for the command that Jesus gave his disciples to be his witnesses. It's also given to us. And like the apostles, we will face challenges and rejection. But despite these challenges, let us continue to witness and to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the hope of the world. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you have come to save us. We thank you that you are indeed the hope of the world. Give us the courage then, Lord, to tell others about you, to tell others even when we feel that we are great at it or even when we think that we are horrible at it, but give us the perseverance the boldness and the faithfulness to do so. We pray all this through the power of your spirit that energizes us. Amen. Let's quickly. Now the question here, what is the significance of Paul using your fathers versus our fathers in verse 25? So in verse 25 says that this the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your fathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet. I think that Paul here is using your fathers rather than our fathers. It's because Paul was intentional in saying that you are very much like your fathers who rejected the prophets. You are very much like your fathers who rejected the prophets during the time of Isaiah. Because it's important to remember that in this message of rejection, it's not as though all of Israel has rejected the Messiah itself. There will always be a remnant. But ultimately, it's saying that here, the Jewish leaders in Paul's time have rejected the message of the gospel. And in doing so, they are very much like their ancestors who killed the prophets and who rejected the prophets. All right, so that's one there. The next question is this. How should a Christian reconcile Paul's rejection motif with Jesus' plentiful harvest motif? 
And I think that here when Jesus talks about lift up your eyes that they are ripe for harvest, he's talking ultimately that worldwide there will be a great response to the gospel. And we have seen it in reality by the entrance of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God and how we are so thankful that Gentiles are now grafted in to the kingdom of God, that Gentiles are now grafted into the olive tree. But lest we be smug about it, Paul also tells us that there will be a time again when a huge number of Jews will come back to the Messiah itself. And we long for the time when both Jews and Gentiles will together worship the true living God and truly form the true kingdom of God. That's another question here. If we are rejected, isn't it also possible that we are doing something incorrectly? Absolutely. So how can we know when that is the case? I think that the best way to know whether that is the case is that when we do evangelism, it's important, I think, to get some training to make sure that we are doing it faithfully and truthfully. But I think that the, the hindrance for us is that ultimately not enough of us are doing witnessing. Not enough of us are really being bold about sharing the gospel. We worry so much about technique. We worry so much about whether we have dotted all the I's you know, and crossed all the T's itself. But I think that we need to just go out and share the gospel. We think that we need to be spiritual giants before we share the gospel. But I say that we share the gospel not from a position of strength, but we share the gospel even in the midst of weakness. And that ultimately when we share the gospel in the midst of weakness, when we are still struggling to find hope even in the gospel, when we share the gospel in that posture, we are being authentic. We are being authentic. And that ultimately the people will see our authenticity and they will be drawn to it. So that we do not need to just only share the gospel from a posture of strength when we've gotten all the answers. But we share the gospel even in our weakness, even when we are broken, even when we are struggling to find hope within Jesus itself. But we tell others. We tell others how we are doing that, how we are trying to find hope in Jesus. And that, I think, is appealing. So let me end with a benediction. And let me, could you all stand, please, and let me end with the benediction here. And let me give you the same charge that Jesus gave to his disciples, in that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So as you go out this week to your respective workplace, to your respective homes, to your respective schools, go in the power of the Holy Spirit and go and witness that Jesus is the hope of the world. Amen.